Father in heaven, we come to you now and we ask that you pour out your spirit upon us as we give attention to your word. We believe, Lord, that um, your word is greater than the words of any man or of any woman, uh, even the best educated and the smartest people of our own age, that there's something eternal and glorious about your words. Would you please speak to us now in and through your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Let me just jump right into the text, and then we'll set some of the scene around it. We begin verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, with John chapter 5, we begin essentially a new section of the Gospel of John. Through the first four chapters of John, you could say that the outstanding theme was revealing Jesus to us, especially through the testimony of many different people and revealing him through the signs which he did. It's almost as if in the first four chapters, John is concerned to tell us this is who Jesus is. Now, beginning at John chapter five, we face a section where he's showing us the opposition that Jesus faced. And this is the theme that's going to carry on through the next several chapters. And it might seem a strange thing to us that God came to the world, that God who was full of love and truth and goodness and who never did anybody any wrong, when he came to the world, he was opposed. He was opposed in many different ways by many different people. But we're going to take a look at that theme over the next several weeks. And this morning, we're going to introduce it by taking a look at what Jesus did at the pool of Bethesda. The scene begins with Jesus coming to this place where it says, verse 1, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the way, we don't know which particular feast it was. You can find different Bible scholars and commentators who say, well, it was Passover. Well, it was Purim. Where it was Pentecost. We don't know exactly for sure. And in regard to this particular text, it doesn't really matter. What does matter is that Jesus went to a particular place in Jerusalem called the Pool of Bethesda. And we just saw it there in the little video we showed right before the message, how this is a place that's been uncovered by archaeologists that lies just north of the temple area in Jerusalem, where they had two separate pools with five separate porches or overhangs where people could be beside the pool, but be covered and be sheltered by the heat and the uh, shining of the sun. And so this was the idea, that as they gathered there, and I want you to take a look at what it says there in verse 3, where it says, it says, in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed. In other words, can you just envision that in your mind? Can you envision around these two pools and in the sheltered colonnades that they have, there's hundreds of sick and afflicted people. There's the blind people. There's the paralyzed people. There's maimed people. It's really sort of a a terrible view of humanity, isn't it there? All around the pool of Bethesda, and they're all waiting. And what are they waiting for? Well, look now as I read to you from the middle of verse 3 to the end of verse 4. Now, let me tell you, if those words are not in your Bible, look up on the screen as we show you the middle of verse 3 through the end of verse 4, where it says simply this. It says... um, 
Verse 3, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, I need to mention this. This is in the translation that I'm using now, the New King James Version. Some of you have other Bible translations, and those words are not in there from the middle of verse 3 on through verse 4. Don't let this upset you. After you take a look at the manuscript evidence, it seems that those words from the middle of verse 3 to the end of verse 4 were added by a copyist at some later time. It's not in the earliest copies of the Gospel of John that we have. Now, what you should give confidence in the New Testament text is, is to notice that something like this sticks out and can easily be seen. And the idea, it seems that probably there was a copyist of the New Testament who added this in the margin, explaining something that's also mentioned in verse 7 about the stirring of the water and getting into the pool for healing. And then at some later time, that was just mistakenly incorporated into the text. In any regard, what I just want you to notice here is that the people at the pool of Bethesda were gathered around there and were waiting for a particular thing to happen. They were waiting for some kind of stirring of the waters. They purported that maybe it was done by an angel. Or some people think that maybe there was a bubbling up from artesian spring. But this is what the people believed. They believed that they waited for the moving of that water. And whoever went in to the pool of Bethesda first. It sounds like a game you would play at a pool party, doesn't it? Whatever happened, whoever went into that pool first after the stirring of the water would be healed of whatever affliction they had. Now, it seems that this wasn't the legend that went for all time. In other words, I don't believe there were people there 365 days a year. It says there in verse 4, a certain time, which seems to indicate that it was around the times of the feasts. So you can imagine around Passover, around Pentecost, around Purim, that people gathered around this pool awaiting for a miraculous happening and that they would dive into the pool or roll into the pool or get into it whatever way that they could, believing that they would be healed at that moment. Now, I know everybody has a question when you talk about this. You say, was this for real or not? Were people really healed by jumping into the pool of Bethesda after the waters were stirred, or were they not really healed? And as a Bible teacher, as someone who studied this extensively, I can give you the categorical answer, I don't know. <laughs> Listen, maybe it was just a superstition. Maybe all it was was a hopeful legend. And it's the kind of thing where maybe it kind of got some currency. Because let me tell you something, folks. If people believe something and they jump into the water after it happens, it's entirely possible for somebody to feel better because of a placebo effect. It's entirely possible for them to feel better because a jolt of adrenaline goes in because they believe, yes, I have it. And maybe they feel better shortly or or a weak limb is suddenly strengthened, but it fades away. And maybe it was just a superstition or a legend. Or friends, you know what? Maybe there was really something to it. The text doesn't really tell us for sure. All the text tells us is that the people believed it. But friends, it might be that God really did dispense some healing love and mercy on that particular situation. Then you say, well, that's really weird. Well, all I can tell you is this, is that when you go through the pages of the Bible, you'll find some weird miracles from time to time. You'll find a weird miracle in the Old Testament where a guy puts a little something into a poisoned pot of stew and it makes everybody better. 
You'll find a healing in the Old Testament where a guy gets dumped into a grave and touches the bones of a dead prophet and he's made alive again. You'll find a healing in the Old Testament where a man who's filled with leprosy dunks himself under the water seven times of the River Jordan and he's healed. You'll find a healing in the New Testament where people are healed by having the shadow of the Apostle Peter come upon them. How weird is that? You'll have a healing in the New Testament where people are healed when they get the sweat bands from the Apostle Paul and they're healed from them. Friends, this is just weird. It's strange. And I don't think it's my responsibility to explain all those things other than just to say sometimes in the Bible there are strange things that can't be readily explained. And it is possible that people were genuinely healed at the Pool of Bethesda. We don't know one way or another. Whether it was a placebo effect, whether it was a genuine thing, we don't know. But this is what we do know. That on that particular feast day, there were hundreds of people gathered around the Pool of Bethesda And they desperately wanted to be healed. They desperately wanted to be delivered from their affliction. There's a blind man who longs to see. He can remember the memory of what it was like to see. And the last time he saw his daughter's face, it was when she was five years old. And now she's 15. And he wonders, what does she look like? I want to be healed. There's a man who's been maimed in some kind of an accident and he's never been able to work a proper day since. And he says, I so want to be healed. And there's another man there who's been paralyzed, laying out on the flat of his back for 38 years. And the only reason why he got to the pool of Bethesda that day was because somebody carried him and he so wants to be healed. Can you imagine that scene in your mind? And then imagine... And I say this is a sacred imagine. I'm not telling you to make up something that didn't happen because it really did happen. Verse 5 says that Jesus came among them. And look at what happens here. Verse 5. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Here's the man who has been lying there for 38 years. And friends, I don't know if he was worse than other people who were there. I don't know if there were other people who had a worse condition than him. I don't know. But this is what we know. There's a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. That's a long time to be paralyzed, don't you think? That's a long time to only get from one place to another because somebody is kind enough to carry you from that one place to another. This man didn't have a wheelchair. All he had was sort of a little bed or a stretcher that people carried him about on. That's all he had. And somebody, out of the kindness of their heart, had carried this man to the pool of Bethesda because they had hoped maybe today will be your day to get the healing from the stirring of the waters. And if somehow, some way, you can get in there first, maybe you can be one of the winners today. Maybe you can be one of the ones who receives something special from God. And there's the man laying there in his condition for 38 years when Jesus walks up to that one particular man. Now, friends, I don't know how many people were gathered around the pool of Bethesda on that day, but I suppose it was in the hundreds. Jesus walked up to one particular man. And what did he do? Jesus saw him lying there. There was a multitude of other people all around. But Jesus went up to this one particular man and asked him the question in verse 6. Do you want to be made well? 
And I tell you, I, I thought about this scene and what it must have looked like. And I tell you, if I was making a movie of this scene, I know exactly how I'd make it here. If there's any screenwriters or directors here, and then just, you know, take my advice on this and give me a little bit of credit here, and then we'll work this movie deal out. <laughs> here's the scene. Everybody's gathered around, and here's this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, and the waters are stirred. Maybe a bubbling comes up from just maybe what was an artesian spring down below, but the waters are stirred. There's trouble. There's a bubble. And what is it? It's like a pool party where everybody jumps in at once, right? Because the idea is, if I hit the water First, I'm healed. Can you imagine the passion, the fury, the energy with which people would throw themselves into the pool? But where's our poor friend who's been paralyzed 38 years? He's off on the side and there's nobody there to help him in. You know why he can't get into the pool? He's paralyzed. And there's nobody to help him. He hoped that maybe he would find a sympathetic person there who would roll him into the pool, who would push him in. But friends, he realizes that everybody there has got their own need. Everybody else wants to get in the pool first. And nobody else is going to help him get into the pool first. And so there, there's all this commotion. Everybody's shouting. Everybody's yelling. Everybody's hoping. Am I the one? Am I the one who got the healing? Did I touch the water first? And in the midst of all that commotion, as this man is heartbroken, because he couldn't even get close to the water, Jesus comes up and he asks him, do you want to be made well? Would you blame the guy for answering why do you think I'm here? Do you think I'd even come here if I didn't want to be made well? But friends, actually, it's a pretty fair question, isn't it? Have you known people who are so comfortable in their present misery that they don't really want to get out of it? Oh, they might wish themselves free from it. But when it comes down to taking some concrete steps to getting out of their miserable position, they don't want any part of it. They don't want any part of doing that. And it's a fair question to ask somebody, do you really want to be made well? Now, sometimes people answer, well, yeah, if you'll do all the work for me and make it easy, then I'll do it. If getting well requires absolutely nothing from me and I can just passively receive it, well, yeah, sure, I'll take it. But what if being made well is a challenge to your faith? What if being made well challenges you to trust God in a way you've never trusted? Well, no, then I'd rather not do it. Do you see what an entirely fair question this was of Jesus to ask the man? Mister, for the last 38 years, you've made your living being a beggar. You're going to have to get another job if I make you well. Do you want to do that? You've arranged your whole life around the circumstances of your present misery. If I shake that up, are you going to be okay with that? Do you want to be made well? I wonder if God's not asking that question to many people here this morning. Now you think you want to be well. You think you want things in your life to be transformed. But are you really willing to trust Jesus and do whatever he tells you to do in order to be made well? That's the question that Jesus has for you this morning. Also notice what happens next in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir... I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Now, do you want to be made well? Yes, I do. But Jesus, can't you see that it's impossible? Because Jesus, don't you know how this works here at the pool of Bethesda? Let me refresh your memory. 
I got to get down into the pool first whenever the waters are stirred up. That's how it works here at the pool of Bethesda. That's how you get better here. And the only way that I can see that I'm ever going to get well is if somebody pushes me into the water before anybody else. Do you want to help me out with that? Hang around with me until the next time the waters are stirred. Maybe I can be one of the winners who gets something from God on that particular day. Friends, I want you to think about this man and think about what an interesting case he is. The man could only think of one way that his need would be met. If you were to ask this paralyzed man, what is your need? He would say, my need is to get in the water before anybody else. But was that his real need? No, his real need was to be healed of his affliction. But he could only think of one way that that could happen for him to get in the water before anybody else. It's so fascinating that this man, understanding that there was no way for him to get in the water before anybody else, he was hopeless. He had this odd mixture of hope and hopelessness. What do I mean by the mixture of hope? Well, he wouldn't be there if he had no hope. But yet, even while he was there, he was overwhelmed by a sense of hopelessness because he couldn't see any way that under the present circumstances, what he wanted could come to him. And so he's this odd mixture of hope and hopelessness mixed up all into once. What does he say again? He says, sir, I have no man to put me in to the pool. His hope is limited because he can only think of one way that God can meet his need And that's for him to get into the pool first. Friends, do you understand that this principle is entirely transferable? You have needs, but you kind of think that there's only one way that those needs can be met. And if you can't meet the needs in that way, then you think, well, good, I'm hopeless. Let me put it to you this way. What you need, you think, I need money. There's probably many people here. You're thinking, man, if I had some more money, my life would be a lot easier. I wouldn't have to think about sweating it from week to week. I could pay off those debts that I have. I could just feel a lot more secure in this world. But don't you see, what you're really looking for is not money. What you're looking for is a sense of security and contentment. Now, look, I got a little suggestion for you. What if there was a way for you to have a real sense of security and contentment in your life without necessarily having more money? If there was only something in your life that could give you that sense of security and contentment without necessarily having more money, wouldn't that be amazing? If only there was a savior who could fill your life with that sense of security and contentment without adding any more money to your bank account. Do you see what I'm getting at? Or how about this? Somebody feels like, man, I got to get married. I got to get married. I got to have that relationship. I just need that. My life is so empty. My life is so void. I got to get married. You know what they're really looking for? They're really looking for acceptance. They just want to know that they're loved and accepted. And they can't see any way to have that fulfilled in their life apart from marriage. Well, you know what? Maybe Jesus Christ could fulfill that in your life apart from you being married. And I'm not trying to say that God doesn't want you to have more money or God doesn't want you to be married. I'm just trying to say that those root needs can be satisfied. The root need that you have for acceptance, the root need that you have for security, the root need that you have for significance. You thought that the only way that you could be significant is to be a big hot shot at your career and be greater than anybody else. Did you know that Jesus Christ can fulfill that need for significance completely apart from that? 
This man could only conceive of one way that God could meet his need, and so he was hopeless. I don't want you to be hopeless this morning. I want you to realize that there is an answer to the deep need of your life that can be satisfied in a way completely beyond your present expectation. So in the midst of this man's curious mixture of hope and hopelessness, what does Jesus say to him? Look at it in verse 8. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, could you blame the paralyzed man for saying, "Uh, Jesus, if I could do that, I wouldn't be here at the Pool of Bethesda. Don't you see I'm paralyzed? Don't you see that I cannot rise? He told him to do essentially three things. Rise, stand to your feet, pick up your bed, take it up in your arms, and walk. He told him to do three things. And he said, Jesus, I can't do any one of those things. You have just asked me to do something that is impossible. And you say, especially, how can he pick up the bed? No, don't think of that trundle bed that you have at home, you know, with the double mattress and all that. We're talking about something like a bed mat, something with a bare frame, if it had a frame at all. Uh, maybe it was something like a stretcher, or maybe it was just like a mat that could be rolled up. So we're not talking about something that's impossible to pick up. But no matter what, It was still impossible. You see, it's easy to imagine that the first reaction of the man was, I can't do that. Why should I even try? And and there was something inside of the man that prompted him to say, even though it's impossible, this man who I've never met before, he tells me to do it, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to make an effort to rise I'm going to make an effort to take up my bed, and I'm going to make an effort to walk, even though I haven't done those things in 38 years. Now, friends, can you imagine at that moment what a struggle there was between faith and unbelief in this man? Faith told him, do it. The special man in front of you tells you to do it. Just try. Unbelief would tell him, why even try? You'll just look like a fool. Forget about it. There was a battle between faith and unbelief at the moment that Jesus challenged him to do it. And unbelief would say, listen, I can't be healed unless I get into the water. That's the only way it works around here. But faith would say, Jesus can heal me any way he wants to. Unbelief would say, that bed has carried me for 38 years. But faith would say, listen, Jesus tells me, now it's time for me to carry that bed instead of that bed carrying me. Unbelief would say, you know, a lot of people who jumped in this pool were only temporarily better. But faith would say, if Jesus tells me to carry that bed, he must mean for me to be healed for real and forever. Friends, the only thing that this man had going for him was to respond in faith to the word of Jesus. That's it. Think about it. There was nothing in this man that was so great or brilliant or attractive. This man wasn't seeking Jesus. He wasn't a man full of hope. We don't have any reason to regard that he was an especially spiritual man. I'll tell you what, he wasn't even an especially good man. In the text we're going to take a look at next week, verse 14... It leads us to believe that that man's paralysis was due to some sin in his life. So he was guilty of something that ended up in that paralysis. I don't know what it was. Maybe he was, uh, you know, uh, messed up and he injured himself. Maybe he was committing a crime. I don't know. But there was some kind of sin in his life that led to that paralysis. He wasn't especially good man. Matter of fact, and we'll see this again next week. 
This man rats Jesus out to the religious authorities. He's not an especially good guy. The only thing he has going for him is that the word of promise came to him through Jesus and he was challenged to believe that promise. And what happens? You know what happens. Look at verse nine. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. He decides, I am going to stand to my feet. I never thought I could, but I'm going to do the best I can. And he found that as soon as he had the faith to put forth the effort, the power of Jesus met him. And verse 9 says, immediately the man was made well. It happened as he responded in faith, as he did exactly what Jesus told him to do, even though a moment before it, it was impossible for him to do it. And the very fact of his healing was confirmed that not only did he have the strength to stand up, he had the strength to pick up that bed and to walk away from the pool of Bethesda. He didn't ask questions. He didn't debate it with Jesus. He just did what Jesus told him to do. Friends, he was healed. Now, I find this remarkable in that this man never asked Jesus for a healing. Isn't that remarkable? He just came. At the pool of Bethesda, nobody asked Jesus for a healing. So Jesus went up to one guy and asked him to respond in faith. And when he did, that man was healed. It kind of reminds me of the fact that in the New Testament, there are many different ways that people were healed. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, in this particular occasion, the guy doesn't ask. Jesus just says, believe and you'll be healed. And he was healed. In another situation, the Bible tells us that the elders of the church anoint someone with oil and lay hands upon them and they're healed. There's another incident where other people lay hands on each other in prayer and ask God for healing and people may be healed under that circumstance. The the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 that some people receive a gift of healing. Either they receive the gift themselves and they are healed or they receive the gift to impart a healing to somebody else. The Bible says that sometimes people are healed in the response of faith. Other times they're healed because they have faith on behalf of another person. And we're also told in the scriptures that sometimes God heals through medical treatment. So again, there's many different ways that God can bring healing. And I think that God deliberately likes to mix it up. Why? So that we don't start making formulas about the way that God works. Isn't that our tendency? Wouldn't it be great if I could just kind of come up with a seminar? Here's your four keys to being healed. A, B, C, D. And you got it. Listen, I think that God wouldn't cooperate with my clever formula. I think God has a way of saying things. Listen, I move, I work, but I do it my way, according to my will. You just seek me and I'll guide you along the way. God isn't into formulas that would manipulate him or seek to guide him in a particular action. No, God has so many ways of healing because it demonstrates that the power to heal is in God and not in any particular method or technique. But this man was gloriously healed. Well, look at the last phrase of verse 9. Do you see what it says? It says, that day was the Sabbath. And if we were making our movie of this particular scene, the music would get very ominous right there. That day was the Sabbath. Now you and I say, so what? Isn't it wonderful that a man got healed on the Sabbath? Isn't that fantastic? It's great. Let me tell you something. 
This is going to set the stage for the opposition that Jesus faces in the rest of the chapter. And I don't want you to forget this when we talk about this next week. All this opposition began because Jesus did something good. There's a cynical saying that we say from time to time. And this isn't found in the Bible. It's just a cynical statement that we make. But sometimes we say, no good deed goes unpunished. And sometimes it seems like that in the ministry of Jesus. He did a marvelous thing in delivering this man from his paralysis for 38 years. And now something's going to come back to Jesus in opposition. And it's going to tie into this theme that we see beginning now into chapter 5 and continuing on with the rest of the book. And friends, we see that this opposition will be used in the great plan of God. Listen, some of you are doing exactly what God wants you to do, and you face opposition. Do not be discouraged. Do not forsake the Lord and your joy in the midst of that time. You're going to see that even when God is moving and there's pushback against it, you'll see that God has a way to glorify himself and do good in our lives in the midst of all of it. All right, but let's conclude with this. When we think of how Jesus came and chose this one man out of everybody was there, and can you have that scene in your mind? There's hundreds of people all around the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus just goes up to one man. And isn't it strange that he didn't have a healing service? He didn't have a healing crusade. He just walked up to one man. Friends, let me tell you how it could have been very different at the pool of Bethesda. Is if people would have came to Jesus and asked him for help. Nobody did. Not even this man. Do you think how different it would have been if somebody would have come up to Jesus at the pool of Bethesda and say, Jesus... I don't care about that water that's supposed to bubble. I come to you and I say, will you, the son of God, bring healing to me? I wonder how many people could have been healed at the pool of Bethesda that particular day. But nobody did. Do you understand what they were doing? Instead of looking to Jesus, everybody was focused on the water, on the pool, waiting for it to bubble. No wonder if that is a tremendous picture of our lives sometimes. You're in some kind of difficulty. You need God to move in your life. But instead of looking to Jesus, you're looking at the way that everybody else thinks it should work in your life. Can I tell you, would you get your eyes, would you stop waiting for the water to bubble? And would you look upon Jesus instead? People wait, they put off, they they, they don't look to Jesus and they look to so many other things to satisfy the deepest longing of their heart when Jesus is right there among them and he just says, if you get your eyes off of those other things and put your eyes upon me, what a difference it would make. People wait for so many different things. Some people wait for a better time to really give their life to Jesus Christ. They wait for a dream or a vision. They wait for a sign or a wonder. They wait to be compelled by God. They wait for some particular feeling. They wait for some great person to guide them. Listen, don't wait for any of those things. Don't be waiting by the pool of Bethesda. Instead, look to Jesus right here, right now, and bring your need to him. And he is able to save and to deliver. Father in heaven, I pray in particular for those among us who feel like they've been waiting for you for a long time. They've been waiting for some particular need, waiting through some particular crisis. Jesus, I pray that you would show your kindness, your deliverance, your greatness 
by drawing their eyes off of whatever they think the solution is and putting their eyes squarely upon Jesus Christ. Lord, we together, just sort of as the community before you, we say, Lord, we don't want to wait any longer staring at the waters. We want to look to you, Jesus. We want to look to you and let you do your work among us as you please. Would you do it in our midst, Jesus? We need this so badly. And I pray that in the midst of that, you would work to satisfy the deepest longings of heart that are among us. You came to bring us life and to bring it more abundantly. Do it among us, God, now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.